Let's open our Bibles tonight to 2 Kings chapter 21. We're going to be looking at the life of two young men, or two men, I should say, Manasseh and Ammon. And these are two kings, and the first one, Manasseh, was one of the one of the worst kings that Israel ever had. And isn't it interesting that we just, his father was Hezekiah, who was a really wonderful man, a great king, in fact, one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had. He's often been called a reformer king because uh, he reformed Israel because they had gotten so much into their idolatry that a reform was necessary to bring them back to where their beginnings were. And it's sort of like a, a car, you know, when you buy a new car, it comes off the lot and, and, and you, you ride it for a while, but every now and then it needs a tune-up, it needs to be aligned because sometimes the wheels and, start, and they start getting you off, you take your hand off the steering wheel and the car starts pulling to the left or to the right and that's time for an alignment and Israel was, Judah especially, now at this time, uh, the northern ten tribes have already been taken captive, but now Judah needs an alignment. And Hezekiah was one of those men to come along and restore uh, the worship in Jerusalem to where it was supposed to be. Supposed to be focused on Yahweh. Supposed to be focused on Jesus. And instead it became something about any, everything but him. And isn't it true that in our lives... It's very easy for us, as we go through life, for things to start to take control of our lives. And sometimes we get into these autopilot phases in our life where we just kind of go on autopilot. But invariably what happens is that autopilot doesn't always bring you closer to God. It usually is drawing you, making your heart um, colder to the things of God. And it is true that our life, our life with Christ, our relationship with Him ought to be purposeful, meaning we really don't, we really can't just slide into neutral. Because when you go into neutral in a car, depending on the ground that you're on, most of the time there's not very many flat surfaces, and life has a way of tilting your, tilting your foundation, doesn't it? And if you're in neutral, you're going to slide, and you're always going to go backwards. And um, God wants us to be in, in, in going forward with him, and it is purposeful. It is something that you have to engage in. It's got to be something that you desire to do. And when you find yourself getting into those places where you're just kind of like going along and you don't feel like anything is happening, those are times to just say, Lord, help me break out of this. And, and, um, and those are times to really begin praying. And pray with somebody. Get together with somebody else. Maybe they're going through a similar thing, and and, and don't allow your heart to get cold, and, and don't allow your heart to be put in neutral. Keep going forward. And Hezekiah was one of these men who was, um, his heart was for the Lord. And what happened during his reign was amazing. And now his son takes over. And he turns out to be one of the worst kings in Israel. And I find it interesting that Ahaz was one of the worst kings in Judah. And then we had Hezekiah, one of the best kings. And now we're going to have Manasseh, one of the worst kings. And I don't know about you, but doesn't it seem like the Bible is, uh, even in this 
up and down roller coaster in Kings, it's almost like the Lord is showing us that regardless of your background, regardless of your environment, what really comes down to is the heart. In other words, we know that Adam and Eve, they had a perfect environment. And God had to allow a choice to be made. He didn't make a robot. He didn't make robots. And he didn't, he didn't allow this thing to become where we love Jesus, we love God because that's all we can do. No, he, he gave a choice. And even in a perfect environment, man chose to rebel against God. And we know that even in the time since then, we live in a, in a world that's really dominated by Satan. It really is. The Bible tells us that he's the ruler over this world, for now. He's the prince of the, of, of the air. And, he, and during this time, we notice that there are men and women who have grown up in this corrupt environment ever since the fall of man, and some have risen to the top, meaning they've given their heart to Christ, they're moving forward, everything's going well. And yet there are others who just continue, continually wallow in their sin and they never recover. And we're looking forward to even another age in front of us yet, after the rapture of the church, after the seven-year tribulation period, and then right when Christ comes to the earth in his second coming, then a thousand-year reign of Christ where he is reigning on the throne. And yet, even in that pristine environment where the curse somewhat is lifted and things are much better than they've ever been, even still in that environment where Christ is ruling on the throne, there's still going to be rebellion. See, most people think the millennial reign is like heaven. Well, for you and I, if you're a believer... In this new body of ours that we're going to receive after the rapture, it's going to be like heaven on earth, but it's not going to be the utopia that everybody thinks. It's going to be great, don't get me, don't get me wrong, especially for Christians. But doesn't the Bible say that Christ will rule with a rod of iron? Now, if, he does, if, if he's ruling with a rod of iron, that means that there's a reason that he has to rule that way. So there's still going to be rebellion. In fact, Satan, remember, we call it the Battle of Armageddon. In the first part of that thousand-year reign, he's going to be locked up, and he won't be able to influence anybody. But even still, the heart of man will, will rebel, and it will prove itself that when Satan is released after that thousand-year period, that he's going to lead a final rebellion upon Jerusalem. And it's going to end pretty quickly because the Lord's not going to deal with it. He's going to make short business of it. But it's proving something. Do you see what I'm seeing throughout the Bible? That regardless of whether you grew up in a pristine environment or whether a sinful environment or another environment where he's actually physically on the earth, regardless of those dispensations, if you will, man will always rebel. And such is true tonight. Here we had Ahaz, a horrible king, and then he gives and then he has a son, Hezekiah. And he reigns with him for a number of years before his father Ahaz dies, and he becomes the sole ruler. You would think that this young man, having seen nothing but the worst, and the worst example possible, you would think that he would be just like his dad. But he wasn't. God did something. 
And now we have, we're we're on the other side of this now, where Hezekiah had a wonderful reign, and he wasn't a perfect man, but God said there's no one like him before him or after him. And so he lives his life, and then he has a son, and his son is Manasseh. And he turns out to be one of the worst kings. So what what is the formula here? Is there some kind of formula here? And I don't think that there is. Because you can grow up in a a horrible environment and follow Christ with all your heart. You can also grow up in a sinful environment and and be just the opposite or or live in a horrible environment. You know, you get my point. It doesn't matter your environment, your upbringing. I grew up with, with, um, you know, as much as my mother did well to raise my brother and I, you know, we weren't a religious family at all. We never went to church. How is it that God could take me, this runt, this idolater that I was, this pagan creature of a man, and bring me out of that mire? How is that possible? And all I can say is two words, but God. And the grace of God, isn't that wonderful? The grace of God. So it doesn't matter. And parents, I want to encourage you in this too before we get into this, that even if you feel like you haven't been the best example for your son or daughter or for your grandkids, all is not lost. Now, should we live as Christians the, and be the very best for them, for our family and, and kids and grand? Of course we should. We should live that example before them. But even when we fail, it doesn't mean that all bets are off and that sun is just going to continue to go downhill. Because sometimes, as we're, we've been seeing throughout the scripture, sometimes those who grew up in horrible environments become one of the greatest leaders in the church has ever known. And that's just the way it is. And consequently, or alternately, if you're really walking the walk and you and your husband, or maybe you're a single parent and you have a child and you're doing all the right things, you're going to church, you're going to Bible study, you're praying, you're, you're exemplifying those things, those Christian values at home, and you're raising your kids you know, in the right way and everything looks good, there's no guarantee necessarily that they're going to walk with the Lord themselves. But there is a verse, and I I love it, it's in Proverbs, and it says, bring up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And tonight, I want you to see that God is going to be faithful to that. And we're not going to see it in this chapter either. In chapter 21 of 2 Kings, there's no mention of Manasseh turning around at all. In fact, if you just read chapter 21 and went into chapter 22, you'd think this guy is a lost cause. Ah, but we get into Second Chronicles, where it gives us a little more information about this man's life. And what is it? Something happens toward the end of his life. He does a 180. And can I tell you that this is unusual? In fact, I don't know of any other character, in, as far as the kings of Israel, Judah or Israel, where he started off bad and got better. <laughs> There's been plenty of examples where they started off good and went to worse. But he's one of the few where he started off horrible and then he got better. And we'll see that. And so be encouraged in that. It, it's also a scary and sobering thing too. And that, see, that's why prayer is so necessary. 
Pray for your kids and your grandkids, regardless of your influence on their life. Pray for them. Pray for them daily with your husband, or, or if you're by yourself, pray to God for them every day. And do your best, because we should be doing our best. And even when our best it doesn't seem to be enough, know that God has you covered. He's got you covered. That human being has to make a decision for Christ themselves. They cannot get to glory on your coattails. They have to come to the point where they recognize this is about me and God, not my parents. This is me and God. And so be encouraged with that. And so let's read just the first 18 verses of of chapter 21, and then we're going to go back and take a look at it. Notice what it says. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he built, he rebuilt, notice, because uh, Hezekiah uh, tore everything down. So now this man, Manasseh, He rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord, Also he made his son pass through the fire. He practiced soothsaying. He used witchcraft, consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son. And this is what God said. In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers. Only if they are careful, and notice, here is the conditional statement. God's going to do all of that only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. And they paid no attention. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke by his servants to prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies." And they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies, because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. And moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. 
And besides his sin, by, and by which he made Judah to sin, in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, and all that he did, and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Manasseh rested with his fathers, and was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden of Uzzah, and then his son Ammon reigned in his place. Now when you read what we just read, it doesn't sound like a very good guy, does it? It sounds like he was finished. He did all this horrible stuff, and then he died. It's a very typical refrain, unfortunately, that we read in Kings. But we're going to get to Chronicles here shortly, and I want to show you something really wonderful. And you already know what it is, because I've already spoiled it. I, I very rarely keep everything to myself. I, I like to spoil it ahead of time. So let's go back to verse 1 and we'll take a look at this. Notice Manasseh, his, his name literally means causing to forget. And I would imagine that many are like, I wish we could forget this guy ever existed. Because uh, Hezekiah had the nation, they were doing really great, and now this man, his son, is leading them all back into it again. And so his name literally means causing to forget. And he was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hephzibah. Now, Manasseh's reign was the longest in Israel's history, the longest. No one has reigned as long as he has, 55 years. And why would God allow evil to prosper? You know, that's often one of the things that people struggle with. If God is really a God of love, then why does he allow evil to continue? Well, let me ask you, is it God's fault that men are evil? Is it his fault? Raise your hand if you think it's his fault. Good, nobody raised their hand. That's the right answer. It's not his fault. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. From the very beginning, we inherited this sin nature. It is not God's fault. He allows man to do these wicked and evil things. And yes, you see other people, good people, getting hurt by evil people. And it hurts us, doesn't it? When you see something like that, you're God, God, if you're really out there, why do you allow this? And it's a hard pill. I won't lie to you. Many people are turned off to the character of God because he allows evil. He allows it for a season. Unfortunately, this season is pretty long. But to him, it's not so long. But we have a choice to make. I can either be good and follow him, or I can be evil. And God allows man to do what he... And there's consequences for those actions. So again, Manasseh, was per, he was the only king who started off completely evil, and we're, as we're going to see later in Chronicles, that he turned and repented later on in his reign. And because this repentance, uh, certainly we're going to see it shortly, that he's going to endure some difficulties. And it could be that he repented because of the undesirable things that were happening in his life, because he was led away by the king of Assyria through a, a rings that he had in his nose that they were leading him out of Jerusalem into Babylon. Him. I don't, the Bible doesn't say about anybody else, but this king and a, and a bunch of other kings were summoned to Babylon, and he was one of them. And he would go there, not of his own volition, but they would lead him through his nose 
And perhaps also because of his, you know, his godly father. Did, was there something in, in his life after, and it was, seemed to be after this, being led away into Babylon for a short season, okay? That alone did it for him. But I can't help but wonder if while he was in Babylon for a short time, if he remembered what his father Hezekiah had said to him, if he remembered the reign of his father, if he remembered those good times and thought to himself, man, I am missing everything. I've messed everything up, and now i got the judgment of God upon me. So perhaps it was both of those things. Again, Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child. And the way he should go, when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I believe this was probably the prayer of Hezekiah before his son was even born. Or maybe while his child was growing up. Maybe he was praying to God, saying, God, let my son be a good man. Save his soul, Lord. Do something in his life. And then, and then to have his son run amok. And then after his death, Hezekiah's death, it's too bad he didn't see it. I'm sure maybe the Lord showed him somehow, you know, but Manasseh turned around. So Manasseh, it tells us, um, we know this through history, that Manasseh was vice-regent with his father Hezekiah. Remember, Hezekiah had become deathly ill, and for about 11 years, from 697 to 686 B.C., Manasseh was vice-regent. He was... He was uh, uh, he served in a lesser role than his father, but he was there and uh, in a lesser role as, as, as a king or as a, like a vice president, if you will. But then after his father died, he went on to rule for another 44 years from 686 to 642 BC, a total of 55 years. 55 years. And notice in verse 2 that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Now remember again the reason that God had removed the Canaanites from the land. Remember Israel was in uh, Egypt for 430 years. And God finally brings them out. They wander around in the desert for 40 years when it should have taken them only two and a half weeks, if that, to get to the promised land. But God was proving them in the desert. And then finally when he brought them in, right before he brought them into the promised land, God speaks to Moses and he tells him in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 4, the Lord speaks to them before they cross over the Jordan into the promised land. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, and he lists these seven nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. Does that sound like the same God we're serving? It's okay to nod your head. It's not very popular to nod your head. Yes, he's a God of grace and he's a God of justice as well. And why did he cause them to, 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 to wipe out those people? 
They had hundreds of years to repent of their sin. Notice what it says. It goes on. And when the Lord your God delivers them over, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor shall you take their daughter for your son. Why? Here's the reason. For they shall turn your sons from following me to serve other gods. And so the anger of the Lord will be roused, aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. So that's the reason, because they were so wholly given over to idolatry. God says they have to be destroyed. My, there's a time when the judgment has to begin. And God was going to use his own people, yes, the Israelites, to be the hammer of God's correction and, and judgment upon these seven nations in the, in the land of Canaan to destroy them because of their wickedness. And God is justified. In Deuteronomy 18, it goes on and it says, When you come into the land, this is verse 9 of Deuteronomy 18. When you come into the land, God says, which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. They would actually do postpartum abortion. After the child was delivered, they would put him into the hand of a molten image of Molech, and they would heat that thing up to where it was red hot, and the baby, they put the baby right in the arms of this thing, and it would literally fry. And this is how they would worship Molech. And it was something that was so detestable to God detestable. So anyone who does that or practices witchcraft or a soothsayer or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer or one who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up up the dead, for all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, notice this, very important, because... Of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Before these nations which you will possess, dispossess, excuse me, listened to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. And so that is why God called them to, to do that. But now... Manasseh is returning them to these abominations. And he was so guilty of these things, he was doing the very same things now that even the pagan, the the, the Gentiles were doing. And he even excelled above them. And can you imagine the heart of God? I've created you for a purpose and you do this. And he allows them to continue because it's his will. It's man's will. See, we have this wonderful thing called the will. We have a will to either obey God or disobey God. And do you know how it breaks the heart of God when you see someone that he has made completely abandon him and go their own direction to their own destruction? And the Bible says that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. But there is a choice. And all around us in America today, people are making choices. What choice are you making tonight? You're here, so you've made a good choice. Because you wouldn't be here unless you had value of the Word of God. You probably wouldn't be here unless the Spirit of God was in you. You probably wouldn't be here unless you felt something was drawing you here. But there are millions of people in our country right now that have no no clue at all 
what you and I know. And it's so important for us to tell them. To tell them the truth. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Right? we got to tell them the truth. But do it in love. There's the catch. There's the catch, Christians. Tell them the truth, but don't come at them in anger. Tell them the truth, but do it in love. Is it possible? Yes, it is. It's possible to tell somebody a truth that's going to wipe them right out, but you do it in love. You don't have to raise your voice. You don't have to get mad. You don't have to win the argument. Get that out of your head. Don't try to win the argument. Just simply tell the truth and let God do the rest because he does a much better job. Thank you very much. He does a much better job than I do. Notice, for Manasseh, verse 3, he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah's father had destroyed, and he raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image. This wooden image is Asherah. It's a female Canaanite goddess of fertility. It's basically a big pole. And he made this wooden image as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. So he's learning from his grandfather. And he also worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. These are the gods of the Assyrians. So he practiced astrology. Notice I didn't say astronomy. Astronomy is just the study of the constellations. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, if you study, hopefully you're going to come away a believer because you're going to realize there's order in the universe. There's someone who made that order, and we know who he is. It's God Almighty. But there are people who study astrology where they try to divine certain things and actions and things that are going to happen in your life. They're called horoscopes. That's really what astrology is. Today you're going to get run over by a car. But tomorrow, all the money that you had is going to go toward a, a, a relative. Or, you know, or you're going to come across $5,000 today. You know, the moon is in the south, and therefore you're, you're going to have a, a blessing today. You know, I mean, come on. That's astrology, and this is what he did. And why did he worship these gods of the Assyrians? Perhaps because he was aware of the tension between Judah and Assyria. He saw that with his father, Hezekiah, as Sennacherib came against him, even though he didn't prevail. But was he aware of how Assyria tried to come up against Judah under his father's reign and how God delivered them? But perhaps he thought that by worshiping their gods, that he might somehow stave off the Assyrians. We don't really know the motive. If you think your enemy is stronger than you are and you're really frightened of your enemy, there's a temptation to serve the same God that, that, they, that they serve, hoping that somehow God will be, you know, if you're not solidly in Christ, you're going to be tempted to do anything. In fact, it's been said that if you don't give your heart to Christ, you'll fall for everything else. You'll try this, you'll try that. I tried that, I tried that, I tried that. Nothing satisfies. Listen, there's one stop shopping. Come to Christ. And you'll never have to look anywhere else again. I tried that and I did that. Well, you didn't try hard enough. You didn't give God an opportunity to work in your life. I mean, some people do that. They, they think God is like this rabbit's foot in their pocket, you know, where, I'll, you know, God, I'll believe in you if, you know, if you do this. And sometimes God comes through and stuff like that. But most of the time, he's not going to play that game with you. If you're really God, you're going to make a cheeseburger fall out of the sky. You know, we set God up for these ridiculous things. 
And if he does cause a cheeseburger to fall out of the sky, make sure I'm standing next to you because I'm going to open and grab it for you and grab it from you and run. Okay? But people expect that of God. He also built altars, verse 4, in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name there. Yes, in Jerusalem. Deuteronomy tells us in chapter 12 that these are the statutes and the judgments which you shall be careful to observe and the land which the Lord your God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. Does that sound familiar? Because now Manasseh is rebuilding those things, but God is saying, don't, do, don't worship me in any of those places, and you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, burn their wooden images which is what Hezekiah did. And you shall cut down the carved images of their gods, destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all the tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. And what is the name of that city? Jerusalem, right? Nowhere else, not on other, other high hills surrounding Jerusalem, no, under no green trees were they to worship. No, it was going to be in Jerusalem. There was going to be one altar in the temple or in the tabernacle, one altar, and there they ought to worship. Very simple. When God wants to tell us how to worship him, we, we better listen and not think outside the box and go, well, this is the 21st century, you know, God is a hip kind of guy. No, he wants to be worshipped in in a right way. And it's not up to us to say, well, I'm going to worship the Lord with dancing with snakes. Well, go for it. If you get bit, you know, hope somebody's got the antivenom next to you. Why would you do that? Why would you worship with snakes? And there's people in Florida and Alabama who, you know, they have services where they hand out venomous snakes. Do you know that? It's crazy. And they tempt God and they call it worship. It's not worship. It's stupidity. (laughs) It's stupidity. For he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he also made his son pass through the fire. He practiced soothsaying. He used witchcraft, consulted spiritists and mediums. He went down to Key West and got his palm read. I mean, these are the kinds of things that are happening in Manasseh's life. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice, to provoke him to anger. Yes, do you know you can provoke God to anger? After all that he's done for us? When he made his son pass through the fire, what he literally did is he sacrificed his son to the false god Molech. And Manasseh did just what his grandfather Ahaz did. In 2 Chronicles 28, it tells us, speaking concerning Ahaz, let me just read this to you briefly. For Ahaz, his grandfather, Manasseh's grandfather did this too. For he walked in the ways of the king of Israel, made molded images for the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So, This role of a grandfather or a grandmother is a great one. He didn't learn it from Hezekiah, his dad, but his grandfather, 
And today, America is guilty of the same crime. I know I don't need to tell you this, but for the most part, you know, these, you know, um, a child today is killed in the womb before it's born. But in Manasseh's day, they did it postpartum, as I shared with you earlier. And there are even some states in our country right now that are passing laws, and laws are on the books to be passed, to allow up to 23 days or something like that after a child has been born to murder the child. Can you believe that nonsense? I mean, honestly, where, where are the hearts and minds of these people? They are so evil. Yes, they are evil. And if they don't repent of their sin, they're going to go straight to hell. Well, tell me what you really mean, Pastor Rob. No, that's the truth. If they don't repent of their sin, this is beyond lunacy, what we're seeing in our country today. And every Christian should not be happy about it. They should be calling their representatives and saying, we don't want any part of this in any state, much less our own. Pray. Pray about it, okay? we got to pray. It's horrible. I would encourage you, time doesn't permit us to do it, but look at Leviticus chapter 20, verse 1 through 6, because it talks about this whole idea of, of Molech and, and, and the things that they did. Uh, again, uh, Leviticus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. But let's go on to verse 7 now. So he even set a carved image of Asherah. Remember the Canaanite female goddess, the goddess of fertility. He created this carved image that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name there forever and will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave to their fathers. And here's the... the um, Only if, only if they are careful to do according to all that I commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. And I'd have you write a couple other things. In in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verses 5 through 11, we have what's known as the Davidic covenant, where God makes a covenant to David and basically tells him that from his seed there would be an everlasting covenant uh, everlasting kingdom, and he would have an everlasting house, David would. And obviously it's speaking all the way down through Jesus Christ, who was of the root of David, was of the tribe of, of Judah. And then later on in First Kings chapter 8, when Solomon, after he had built the temple, after David had passed from the scene, his son Solomon built this temple. And what does it tell us? It says that... Um, that, that Solomon had, uh, had prayed to God. He dedicated the temple. I'd encourage you to read 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 14 through 21. And what we just read here in the last couple of verses in 7 and 8, you can read those two uh, passages and get an idea where they came from. They came from that Davidic covenant and also Solomon's prayer and dedication for the temple. It speaks all about that about how God had created this place for them to worship. And they weren't to do those other things. But notice in verse 9, 
It says, but they paid no attention. And Manasseh seduced, and, and notice the term there, he seduced them. It literally means he, he designate or pointed out. That's literally what the word means. So they paid no attention, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And so there is a cost to ignorance and rebellion, isn't there? There's a cost. And they are going to pay the price. And the Lord, verse 10, spoke by his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites. Underline that word Amorites, and I want you to put a scripture reference over it. I'm going to read it to you, but put the reference right over Amorites. Genesis 15, beginning in verse 13. Genesis 15, verse 13. And why there? Because notice what he said, that Manasseh has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him and has also made Judah to sin with his idols. So as a leader and a shepherd of Israel, he should have been pointing them to the Lord, but again, he was pointing them uh, to useless idols and doctrines of devils. He was pointing them to those things. But this is why that's so important. I had you underline Amorites because in Genesis 15, now remember, this is back several hundreds of years prior to what we're talking about right now. What did God say to Abraham? Well, let me read it to you. Genesis 15, beginning in verse 13. Notice this. Very important. Then God said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants, and this is after God had brought Abraham, out of the Ur of the Chaldees, meaning modern-day Iraq, brought him up to Haran and then finally down to the Promised Land, what you and I would call Israel. And this is a very long time ago. God says to him, Know certainly that your descendants, Abraham, will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. Who is he talking about? The Egyptians. The Israelites... These people hadn't been born yet, but through Abraham's line, through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, their their people would be led into captivity, or they would be in, in, in Egypt, and they would serve them 400, it's really 430 years. But um, and notice, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge, and God did that, didn't he, when he brought them out of, out of uh, uh, Egypt? He judged them, and he judged Pharaoh in the, in the, Dead sea, or in the Red Sea, excuse me. And afterwards, they shall come, meaning the Jews, they shall come out with great possessions, and they did that as well. They spoiled the Egyptians. But now in verse 15, it says, Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall return here. Why? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Didn't we just read about these people here in this verse, in verse 11? The Amorites... God had given them over 400 years at least to turn from their sin. Is God patient? Is he, is he just? He's, he's a very patient God. He's been patient with me, even though I've given him every reason to snuff me out. Has anybody here tonight given him reason to snuff you out? <laughs> he has. I don't deserve what he has given me. 
In fact, I think that's a really good prerequisite to having a heart that's right to receive Christ, is knowing that I don't deserve anything that God has for me. But he gives it to you and I as a gift. Christ paid all the price for it, but you and I, get the, we're the beneficiaries of that, of that salvation, of that grace. And that's something that we can't earn. And that just makes you want to love God even the more, doesn't it? And I have to throw this in here because we're talking about some pretty heavy stuff. You know, this is not a good time in Israel's history. But it's nice to balance it with the grace and the love of God because that's the truth, folks. And I hope you know that. And I believe most of you do. But never get tired of knowing how much God really loves you in spite of your performance, in spite of who you are as a person. He loves you just the way you are. But we need to change in the sense of coming to him. But he can use who you are. Your personality doesn't have to change. He'll take your personality and who you are and redeem it. If you're a really quiet person, you may be a quiet person after you get saved. If you're a real outgoing personality, you're probably going to be very outgoing once he gets a hold of your life. He can use you and he loves you. Don't ever forget that especially while we're going through such darkness in this period of the Scripture. Don't lose sight of the love of God. And I think you'll see just how great God is at the end. So therefore, verse 12, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears it, both their ears will tingle, and I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. That doesn't sound very good, does it? That sounds to me like God had had enough. Now is time for chastening. He's going to flip that plate over, scrape it right off. But God, his anger is but for a moment, the Bible says. And yes, he is severe. And he caused his own people to go into captivity. But did he leave them there forever? Did he say, I'm done with you forever? See you later. I'm going to the Gentiles. Is that what God did? No, it is not what God did. He told them, even before they went into captivity, that he was going to deliver them. He told Jeremiah that 70 years, they're going to be in Babylon, and they literally could go and count the days before God would let set them free. And he did. In that 70th year, he brought them back because of his loving kindness, because of his goodness. Everybody smile, because you need to smile right now, because some of you have already had dinner, you've had a long day, and now we're talking about death and judgment and hail and brimstone, and I just need to see somebody smile, because... Everybody awake? All right, we're good, we're good, we're good. Yeah, only a couple people dead. All right, we're good, we're good. Only a couple flatliners. We're good, all right. (laughs) Notice, he's going to do this because, why? Verse 15, they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. And these enemies spoken of in verse 14, where it says, I will give them into the hand of their enemies. Certainly it's speaking of the Assyrians, which, we're gonna, um, which we know uh, Hezekiah was ultimately going to go to uh, Babylon through the Assyrians. But ultimately it's going to be speaking of the Babylonians. The Babylonians would ultimately come for Jerusalem, but it wouldn't be for uh, more time ahead yet. God was very gracious with Judah and Jerusalem. He gave them so much rope. You, you, know, what that, you know what that rope is? You, you know, something, we've heard of that long rope. You know, you give somebody a lot of rope to hang themselves. Well, God gives enough rope in his grace. He's hoping that before 
you hit you know, the bottom of that rope that you will turn. And that, see, that's his heart too. He gave them, he's very gracious. The Bible says plenteous in mercy. I love that in the King James. Plenteous in mercy, long-suffering. I wish Gail Irwin were here. If you ever heard Gail Irwin do this, she'd be a giggle with the suspenders. You know, I, won't, I can't even do it, so I won't even do it. But God is patient. And God was going to be faithful to the promises that he had made. Write another verse down here. Jeremiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Because God is going to be faithful to his promises that he made. And what is this promise? The Lord said, verse 13 of Jeremiah 9, because they have forsaken my law, and here God is speaking to Jeremiah to give this message to Judah, because they have forsaken my law which I set before them and have not obeyed my voice nor walked according to it, but they've walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the Baals which their fathers taught them, notice, therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them this people with worm wood that's never a good thing and i will give them water of gall to drink this is not gatorade this is something really horrible and i will scatter them notice what god says i will scatter them among the gentiles whom neither they nor their fathers have known and i will send the sword after them until i have consumed them it's been said by one great man of God. His name is Merrill Unger. He said, those who sin against the greatest light fall into the deepest darkness. And I think about the light that Manasseh had, having such a great dad, Hezekiah. And because of that great light that he had, this man plummeted to the very bottom He plummeted right to the bottom. Verse 16, Moreover, Manasseh shed much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other because his sin by which he had made Judah to sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. In fact, um, it's at this point we believe uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, you might want to write this verse down in the margin of your Bible off of 16. Hebrews 11, chapter, uh, Hebrews 11, verses 36 and 37. Notice what it says. This man was so evil... (laughs) I shouldn't be laughing, I should be crying. Notice what it says in Hebrews, verse 36. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. But notice, they were stoned, meaning they were stoned to death. Some of these heroes of the faith were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute and afflicted and tormented. But notice when it says they were sawn in two. Tradition tells us, Jewish tradition tells us, Jerome, the translator, tells us. And again, this is a tradition, but... It's believed that it was Manasseh that had killed Isaiah the prophet. This is what the tradition tells us. And tradition tells us that they hollowed out a log. They hollowed out the log and they stuck him in it. And then they got the guys with the saws and they sawed the tree in half, thus sawing him in half. This Manasseh, putting to death one of the greatest prophets Israel has ever known, Isaiah the prophet, 
Verse 17, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the books, book excuse me, of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Well, funny you should ask. Go ahead and ask. Is it, is it really there? Yeah, let's go there. Go with me to Second Chronicles now, chapter 33. Second Chronicles chapter 33. Again, if we only read this passage in Second Kings, we wouldn't know the best part of Manasseh's life. And this is why I'd like for you to encourage you, whenever you read Kings, and I've said this before, Look at the parts in the Chronicles that, that, that correspond to those kings because oftentimes you'll get more information and this is one that I'm really glad that it's written here because otherwise we would have missed the, one of the most glorious things that ever happened. Second Chronicles 33, beginning in verse 10. Notice this. So, you know, Second Kings told us what a horrible man. Now, let's fill in the blanks a little bit. What happened in the latter part of his reign? What caused him to turn? And here's the exciting part, folks. And the Lord, 2 Chronicles 33, verse 10, And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but notice they would not listen. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria. And this king of Assyria at this time was probably Ashurbanipal, who reigned from 668 to 626 B.C. But notice, he took Manasseh with hooks. And literally, in the margins of your Bible, you might even, it might even say they, they, they put hook in, in his nose, nose hooks. And they bound him with bronze fetters, and they carried him to Babylon. <laughs> now, when he was in affliction, notice this, he implored the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and he prayed to God, and he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. This is incredible, folks. This is amazing. This horrible man goes into, into, into prison, being led by hooks in his nose, and he gets changed. The Lord gets a hold of him, and the Lord listens to him. And God received his entreaty, heard his supplication, brought him back to Jerusalem, into his kingdom, and then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Oh my goodness, the light bulb goes off. After this, notice, he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate, and it enclosed Ophel. And he raised it to a very great height. He put military captains on all the fortified cities of Jerusalem. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. He cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. This is like a a revival. (laughs) Certainly not like Hezekiah, but he, he really understood the grace of God. And, and look at the response of a heart that has been in such darkness. And then God hears him, and God does this for him. See, we're always indebted to God. We're always indebted to him. He doesn't owe us anything. We owe him everything. He delivered you and I from so great a death. So great a death. I wonder what would happen if we just spent one minute in hell. (laughs) I'm glad that we don't have to, but I would imagine that if every person in the world was to spend one minute in hell, this church would be completely packed. Every church in America would be completely filled, and they'd have to build new ones. 
that would accommodate the people that would say, I've had it. But see, that's the reality. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel. Indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. We just read that. And also his prayer and how God received his entreaty and all his sin and his trespasses and the sites where he built the high places and set up wooden images and carved images before he was humbled. Indeed, they are written among the sayings of Hosea, or literally the seers in the Septuagint. So Manasseh, he rested with his fathers. They buried him in his own house. And then his son Ammon reigned in his place. And um, I want you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. We have to read this. Because why is this such a big deal? I mean, other than the obvious that this man... So 1 Kings chapter 8, please go there and look at verse 46 through 53 with me. Because here is the glory of this whole thing that we've been talking about tonight. Because God is going to be faithful. Just as God was faithful in the judgment that he was going to bring upon those who did those things, he is also faithful to adhere to the promise that he gave to Solomon. And what do I mean by that? Look with me at verse 46. And Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, remember, he says, and he says, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, Solomon says, and you become angry, God, with them, and you deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy, far or near. And isn't that what just happened to Manasseh? Now pay attention. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive, meaning Manasseh, and they repent, And they make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness. And when they turn to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive, and they pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the temple which I have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. And then forgive them, your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Do you see what happened? God was faithful to that promise that he had given because Manasseh was in Babylon and he cried out to God and God answered and he brought him back and his captors allowed him to come back. Do you realize that that's fulfilled prophecy? God told him exactly what what he had to do when he was in captivity. He did it and God restored him. God was faithful. God was faithful to judge him for his sin and God was also faithful that when he repented to bring him back and see that is the key. Love God, don't you? He's so faithful. He's so faithful. I would encourage you to write. We don't have time to go here, but um, write down 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 12 through 22. One of the the greatest verses in that passage I have to read because I'm compelled to do it. 
It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, if they do this, then, do you see the, the um, oh, what's the word I want? <laughs> yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's an unconditional, it's a conditional statement, isn't it? There's a condition. Whenever you have, if they do this, then I will do this. That's conditional, isn't it? Because if they don't do this, then I'm, gonna, then I'm not going to do this. It's conditional. Now, God gives plenty of unconditional promises for us, the church. You know, he, he does. And even the Jews, he gave unconditional promises. And those are the best ones. But he also holds us accountable and says, if you do this, then I'm going to do this too. And that's exactly what he did. If my people who are called by my... And of course, he's speaking about the Jews, but I think this is also applicable to us. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. There is the recipe for our revival in this country. That is the recipe how America gets turned around, not through any other um, political person or personality. This is the solution for turning America around. No man, no woman. It's all about this verse. Second Chronicles 7.14. Make it part of your life, and may we as a church take it in, and may we be part of that change. But God is faithful, and just um, and He's not a respecter of persons. In other words, God's not partial to one group over another. There's always a consequence for sin, whether it's the Babylonians, the Assyrians, or even His own people. He is not a respecter of persons. He's not. God doesn't wink his eye at sin. So Manasseh rested with his fathers, was buried in the garden of his own house. And let me just quickly read to you these last few verses because there's not a whole lot about Ammon. He was just a rotten scoundrel. End of story. He died and it was over. (laughs) Okay, but let's read it. Ammon, his son, was 22 years old when he became king. He reigned two years Notice, a a man who reigned 55 years, and most of those years were completely decrepit. And then toward the end of his reign, he repents. And thank God that he did. It's, It's unheard of for an evil king to repent like that. But his son... Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulamath, the daughter of Herez of Jotbah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. So he walked in all the ways that his father had walked, and he served the idols that his father had served, and he worshipped them. He forsook the Lord God of his fathers and did not walk in the way of the Lord. So for some reason, Amnon did not consider this change in his father. It was almost like it never happened. And certainly it was toward the end of his reign, so it wasn't really significant. And perhaps that's why in 2 Kings 21, it makes no mention of it. We had to go to Chronicles to find it. It was just a short time, but the Lord did it. After all that debauchery, he just, the guy repents, he comes back, and he removes all that stuff that he had built up again. 
But for some reason, Ammon didn't even consider any of this, but resorted back to idolatry. Notice verse 23, then his servants, and here's the, what does the Bible say? The wages of sin is what? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But the, but the wages of sin is death. Hold that in your mind because... Then the servants of Ammon conspired against him and killed the king in his own house. He didn't even make it to his 24th birthday. But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. They had enough of, a, of, a, of justice in them because the law said that if you killed somebody, you, you too would be killed. But the people of the land executed all those who conspired against King Ammon. And then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Ah, Josiah. I can't wait till next week. Because when we get to Josiah, we're going to see another wonderful man. He was only eight years old when he became king. Can you imagine an eight-year-old? He's still playing with Legos. And thank God he's got men around him that are, that are nurturing him and that, that are teaching him. Eight years old he started, and he was a great and awesome king. But unfortunately, after Josiah, Judah's going to plunge right into the abyss, and they'd be taken captive by the Babylonians. But I can't wait to read about him, because another great revival takes place in Judah in Jerusalem, and I pray for that for America. I don't think we should just settle and think, well, we're going to hell in a handbasket. We might as well just buckle up and let it go. No, I say we pray like never before, and I say that we do what we can to preserve this great nation of ours and not just accept it. It's going to happen at some point, we believe, but do we just roll over and act like and pretend and just, oh, we might as well, you know, whatever, you know, and just go about our daily lives, just let the thing go? I don't, I don't think that's the right course. God would have us pray. God would have us do right things. God would have us love. God would have us share his truth. We ought not to just cave in and be feudalistic, fatalistic. Then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And honestly, you can read Second Chronicles 33, verses 21 through 25, but it really doesn't give us any more information about Ammon's life at all. So we won't go there, but you can read it yourself. But notice, he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah, which is the same place that his father was buried in the same place that Manasseh was buried. And then Josiah, his son, reigned in his place. And so not a good man. Certainly Ammon wasn't, but Manasseh started off really bad, but became a great, uh, something totally different at the end. And uh, I just love how God doesn't give up on you. He doesn't give up on people. The only time that God gives up on you is when you take your last breath. And then your decision will stand. But until you take your last breath, I believe that God is always working, always wooing you to himself. Like a bridegroom does a bride. He's always wooing her, winning her heart. Always trying to win her heart. 
God is doing the same thing for you and I, and even for unbelievers. And I was an unbeliever at one point, and I can tell you that in my darkest depravity, God was always searching me out, and I was so ashamed, and I was so hurt, and living in misery, and God didn't just say, well, you've made your bed, son, sleep in it. No, he reached down, he threw down the rope, and he says, wrap that around your foot, and I'm pulling you out of this mess right now. And he pulls me right out. And he did the same thing for you. Hallelujah. Isn't that awesome? I love God. Don't you just love Jesus for what he has done? Let's stand together and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you even though this passage is really difficult to read. Lord, and it's certainly not encouraging, the beginning of it anyway. But Lord, we're thankful, Lord, that you grabbed a hold of this evil man's heart. And Lord, you're, you're never... You're never too late, God. You're always on time. I, I don't understand the mystery of it. Lord, it boggles me. It, 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 it confuses me to consider your greatness and your grace. I don't understand it, Lord, and I'm so glad I don't. It's your business. And you do that in the lives of so many people. You did it to all of us in this room, God, and we're so thankful tonight. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. Thank you for never giving up on us. I pray that you'd never, even now, even in the midst of where we're at, even in the midst of the things in our hearts right now today, even today when we failed you somehow, Lord, you're not angry with us. You've put that sin, if we confess it, you'll never look upon it again. Lord, that's the promise that you have given to us, that Christ, the blood of Christ covers us, cleanses us, forgives us, and you'll never look upon it again. You'll never, ever look upon it again. And that's how great a salvation we have. And for that, Lord, we say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We owe you our lives. We owe you everything, Lord. Would you take us? Would you transform us? Would you renew us? Would you revive us? Tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.